Hey there, guess what? Uh, Diaper Don was hit by a uh, final warning from Fulton County Prosecutor. Might have said two hours ago. Oops. For Watch your mouth, traitor. Do not pay for another grocery Thanks for bill one again. Ten. If you're over was, the age of 64 a big jump and on Medicare. Day. Michael Popak, Legal AF with breaking news. Phony Willis watching how Donald Trump is attacking the judge and prosecutor in Manhattan. She's sitting in Fulton County, Georgia, about to make her charging decision, likely in May, before another grand jury. She is warning Donald Trump that if he tries what he's doing in Manhattan, in Georgia, he's in for a world of hurt and ultimately possibly adding new charges for intimidation against the prosecutor's office and or his family. This in a recent interview, yeah. just a day or so Thank after you, uh, Donald Trump took to the ballroom in Mar-a-Lago and started bashing all of the prosecutors, calling them, if they're black, racist, if, uh, if they're black, animals, and if they're Jack Smith, insane, out of control, depraved. This is all the code words that he uses, that he mixes and matches for the various prosecutors, depending upon their ethnic background, their racial background, and the like. And Phony Willis, Fulton County prosecutor, who's investigating Georgia election interference, has told Donald Trump in no uncertain terms, you come after my family, you come after my staff, you come after me in an improper way, you've crossed the line, you're no longer exercising proper First Amendment right to speak freely while you're presumed innocent, and you've now committed potentially another crime. And how do we know Donald Trump's going to do it? Because while he was in the courtroom in Manhattan, while all the prosecutors are watching, Jack Smith and all of his line prosecutors, Phony Willis and all of her line prosecutors, the Manhattan DA's office, and there are dozen prosecutors that are going after Donald Trump now that he's been indicted. They're all watching to see what he's going to do, what he's going to write, what he's going to say, because they're going to use it in their case. They're going to use it in front of a judge to try to get a gag order, if possible. They're going to use it to say that he's violated the terms related to his indictment or his arraignment. They're going to use it against him at trial. They're going to use it against him when he tries to get his hands on certain discovery produced by the prosecution because there's going to be protective orders now in place. And every time the prosecutor needs something in his arsenal to put in front of the judge, Donald Trump is more than willing to provide it to him. You want evidence that I'm not going to respect the, the rules of this courthouse, the rules of this court? I'll give it to you. You want evidence that I don't respect the judge and I'm going to attack him mercilessly and go after his family and his daughter and his wife? I'm going to give it to you. You want evidence that I'm going to go after the prosecutor and his family and his wife and call them inappropriate things and threaten them to dismiss the indictment? I will give it to you. I mean, this is like manna from heaven. This is a cornucopia of evidence. If I'm the prosecutors in these cases, I am salivating. I'm rubbing my hands in glee because I've got an out-of-control, crazed uh, opponent on the other side, who's giving me gifts every day that I can use actually in real time in my cases. And Phony Willis, keeping her eyes on Donald Trump, who's now squealing like a pig, uh, you know, <laughs> having been now indicted once, he went after Phony Willis in Mar-a-Lago. And, and this now infamous, crazy, um, you know, uh, mutiny, uh, the Kane mutiny, uh, weird... A uh, show of uh, psychobabble where he just went prosecution by prosecution against everybody and ended up attacking them one by one. 
And here's it's easy. If you're a block prosecutor or somebody like who's the New York Attorney General, you're a racist and you're an animal, so you're dehumanized. If you're white, you're insane um, and you're politically motivated and everybody's a Trump hater and everybody's a Trump basher. And let's find out what their wives and girlfriends and grandmothers have done for a living or, what, or if they've been a Democrat or not. Now let's call attention to the fact that prosecutors are elected in a political process generally. They're either Republican or Democrat. To make a big deal out of that, this is the playbook. And Fonnie Willis, like Judge Mershon in New York, who said almost the exact same thing to Donald Trump when he was the first judge to have him in his courtroom for a criminal charge. He said he looked at Mr. Trump in the eye and he said, if you go beyond the First Amendment and you try to incite violence, in this city, you and I are going to have a problem, and I'm going to draw the line there. And Phony Willis picked up on that very same theme and said, I recognize the First Amendment, but there are limits. And if you go after me, my family, or my staff, you've crossed that line. And particularly, there is a line in Georgia, as there is in most other states. And the line is expressed in a, a criminal statute. There's actually a couple of them that I think would apply, that would apply in this particular case. And you look at, if you want to find it, and we'll put it up on the screen, it's 16-10-97 of the Criminal Code of Georgia. And in particular, and I'll read for you what it says, it says that a person who by threat or force, by any threatening action, letter, or communication, injures any officer of the court, that's the prosecutor in this case, in any proceeding in any such court, then it is punishable as a felony up to 20 years in prison yeah. and a $5,000 fine. And that's not all. There's another provision that says if the attack is on the family of a, a law enforcement member, which is a prosecutor, it's another felony and it's punishable up to five years in prison. Sergeant! So watch it former president. Watch it, Mr. Trump, who identified himself in court and in, and in his booking as a businessman, not even as the former president, which he loves. The prosecutors, the witnesses, the judges and prosecutors' families charge him. call himself, you know, President Trump, when they asked him in New York, because New Yorkers don't care about what you did in the past, especially Donald Trump.
your profession. He didn't say, I'm a statesman. I'm a former president. I, I, I have an institute. I, I do foreign policy. I saw, I'm going for the peace prize like Jimmy Carter or, or Clinton. Or, and that's not all. There's another provision that says if the attack is on the family of a, a law enforcement member, which is a prosecutor, it's another felony and it's punishable up to five years in prison. So watch it, former president. Watch it, Mr. Trump, who identified himself in court and in, and in his booking as a businessman, not even as the former president, which he loves to call himself. You know, President Trump, when they asked him in New York, because New Yorkers don't care about what you did in the past, especially Donald Trump, what's your profession? He didn't say, I'm a statesman. I'm a former president. I, I have an institute. I, I do foreign policy. I saw, I'm going for the peace prize like Jimmy Carter or, or Clinton or Obama. He said, businessman. I'm a businessman. Well, Mr. Businessman, if you go after Fawny Willis and you keep making these statements in order for you to grift and bring in additional money, because every time you make a statement like that, you raise five to $40 million a day. That's on record. We know that from your PACs and all the other stuff that you're doing. She's going after you. And since she hasn't made her indicting decision, I mean, the, 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 the mental depravity of Donald Trump and just the stupid strategy of pressuring and attacking prosecutors who haven't even yet made their charging decision is beyond stupid. Jack Smith is going to indict Donald Trump for one of three grand juries that are sitting in the District of Columbia, whether it's Mar-a-Lago, whether it's intentional, intentional interference with the election process and the peaceful transfer of power, or it's the money grift off of your um, failure to recognize Joe Biden as the president uh, dutifully elected by voters. One of those three things, or all of those three things, attacking him and calling him a radical which is incorrect, and calling him a Democrat, he's a not, he's an independent, and calling him insane when your own lawyer, Jim Trusty, one of your several, this one has been able to keep himself out of being indicted himself before the grand jury, worked closely with Jack Smith. They're friends when they work together in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and he'll, and he'll say the exact opposite. Just ask the guy next to you, ask your lawyer next to you. But that's not going to help you, Mr. Trump. That's not going to help you. In, in averting an indictment. If anything, it's just pissing off the career uh, investigators, FBI agents, um, prosecutor investigators, and line prosecutors who are eating, sleeping, and drinking you, Donald Trump, every day for the last two years. It's just making them focus more. It's just making them just a little bit more invested in bringing you down based on the evidence that they are developing. Same thing for Fawny Willis. Attacking her is not going to make her go away. It's only going to make her more redouble her efforts and her perseverance to go after you, to make them feel good every morning about getting up and going after and taking down somebody who's as vile as you are in your attacks, not only on prosecutors or who barely get paid to do that job, but their families, their wives, their daughters, 
Okay, if we're going to talk about wives and daughters, why don't you talk about Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny? Why don't you talk about all those other relationships and the siblings and the daughters and sons of Donald Trump grifting all along the way with our enemies? Do that. Talk about that. But let's not talk about the fact that, you know, Judge Mershon in New York's daughter worked for a time as a Democrat, worked for the time uh, uh, for Kamala Harris, you know, on her campaign. Who cares? What does that have to do with anything? You know, uh, women and children and and husbands and wives are separate units. Okay, uh, they're independent. And they get to make their own decisions in this world about who they're going to vote for. It doesn't mean that their significant other is prosecuting you because they're Democrats or because, you know, somebody tweeted out something. It doesn't give you the right to put up pictures of you trying to brain the Manhattan DA with a baseball bat. And so Fawny Willis has said, I've had enough. I've watched you. I've watched all the things that you did and all the lies that you're continuing to tell to your supporters about Fulton County and its investigation. He keeps saying, because he thinks it fits on a, neatly on a bumper sticker, there was one perfect phone call in Fulton County and this crazy racist uh, uh, Trump hater uh, prosecutor's going after me for it. By the way, there's not just one phone call. We now know from the special purpose grand jury that there's at least four or five phone calls involving you calling all different people in Georgia, frantically trying to get them to throw the election to you. So you not only called Raffensperger looking for 11,780 votes on January the 2nd, but you also called David Ralston, who died in November, but at the time was the Speaker of the Georgia House, and asked him, get this as part of irony, asked him to impanel a special purpose grand jury just like the one that was just used against you by Fawny Willis, in order to take the election results away from Joe Biden and throw the election over to you. And, and even Ralston, who's right wing as it came, now that he's, he's passed away, I'll mention it, he even said, no, we're not doing that. So you have that phone call. You've got the phone call we just talked about. Trump called the governor and tried to get uh, Brian Kemp to uh, have a special session of the legislature and to do something about it. So there's not just one phone call, there's multiple phone calls between Ralston, Raffensperger, Kemp, all by Donald Trump, all recorded, and all in evidence with Fawny Willis down in Georgia. So stop lying to your followers and your cultists about what the nature of the indictment that is likely to come in May or beginning of June out of Fulton County is all about. And stop attacking law enforcement who put their who, you know put their lives on the line every day, okay, and try to create and incite and foment violence against them. In this country, we've had federal judges who have been assassinated. We've had family members of federal judges who were assassinated because they were home and the judge wasn't home. We've had bombs sent to federal and state judges. Some, some were successful in assassinating that member. Some weren't. We've had DAs and federal prosecutors shot and killed. Okay? That is the nature of what's happened here in this country. We have police, of course, 
that have been attacked, FBI agents who have been attacked. It's inappropriate. It's not a game. It's not television. It's not, it's not another episode of succession. It's real life when Don Jr. doxes a wife, a daughter. That could be your wife or your daughter out mm -hmm. there watching. That is what this family is about. That's the vile, corrupt nature of what is being prosecuted. Some of which is, is for, uh, right now he's being prosecuted for things before he was even president. The next round is going to be for things he did uh, while he was president and while he had left office. So we're going to get it all. We're going to get while he was president, after he left being president, and before he was president. That's who Donald Trump was. We elected, you know, the majority, a corrupt individual who he and his family have been corrupt for a long, long time. Had no place being anywhere near that sacred, hallowed Oval Office to, to represent the United States with the honor of being president. That's what we elected. And his grift and kleptocracy continued on the way in, once he was in office, and after he left office. And now the prosecutors are just going after the facts, putting them in front of a jury of his peers, and walking away with indictments and hopefully in the future convictions. But right now, Fawny Willis and the other prosecutors are banding together to let Donald Trump know with a hard shove that his efforts of intimidation are not working, and if he crosses the line and gets himself out from under First Amendment, he'll be sub subject to gag orders, other conditions of arraignment, and possibly being charged with crime of intimidation. We'll talk more about these things and follow up with them on hot takes just like this one. And I co-anchor on Wednesdays and Saturdays the leading political and legal podcast on the Midas Touch Network. It's called Legal AF. If you like what I'm doing, Michael Popak, you can follow me on social media at MS Popak. This is Michael Popak reporting. Lock him up! Indictment season is upon us. Celebrate with the new indictment season t-shirt and v-neck exclusively at store.midastouch.com. said I've had enough I've watched you
Bonnie Willis. Bonnie Willis. Um, Alvin Bragg. Tish James. Nightmare for Trump. New Court of Appeals order is devastating for Trump one hour ago. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. So Special Counsel Jack Smith got a major win last week in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in connection with his criminal investigation of Donald Trump. We briefly covered what transpired in the Court of Appeals, but not within the context of how this is very beneficial to Special Counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation of Donald Trump and ultimately what I believe are the charges that are going to be brought against Donald Trump. And let me just give you the background. So just first and foremost, the Court of Appeals decision that I'm referring to is that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals reversed a lower court's ruling. Uh, the lower court, uh, a federal judge by the name of Carl Nichols, who was appointed by Donald Trump, who had previously made a ruling in a case involving three insurrectionists that the Department of Justice could not bring uh, charges in their indictment for obstruction of official proceedings. And Judge Carl Nichols gave a very tortured analysis of the obstruction of official proceeding statute, which could be found at 18 U.S.C. section 1512 C2, that's the United States Code section, where this charge of obstruction of an official proceeding is found, and Judge Carl Nichols, again a Trump appointee, said that this specific section only relates to the destruction and mutilation of documents. Therefore, if an insurrectionist was otherwise uh, impeding or preventing the certification of the electoral votes, but that the insurrectionist was not like physically destroying records and shredding records, uh, Judge Carl Nichols said that you couldn't charge that insurrectionist with an obstruction of an official proceeding charge. And I think Judge Carl Nichols, again a Trump appointee, in making that ruling was really trying to do Donald Trump a favor. Why do I think this? One, Carl Nichols is a Trump appointee. Two, his analysis was so utterly absurd. Um, and three, ultimately, who would be the beneficiary of perhaps the main charge that you would bring against Donald Trump? Obstruction of official uh, proceedings. Now, if Judge Carl Nichols' ruling was affirmed and not reversed by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, what would have happened actually is not just would the Department of Justice not be able to charge the three very violent and despicable insurrectionists who were at the heart of the case where Judge Carl Nichols ruled the Department of Justice couldn't bring that charge, but actually the 
hundreds of other cases where obstruction of official proceeding charges were brought would actually be dismissed as well, and the Department of Justice would be prevented from bringing those charges in the future if the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ultimately ruled that the obstruction of official proceeding charge um, only related to the destruction and mutilation of physical records here. Let me just pull up the statute so you can just read it for yourself, and I'll just explain to you why Judge Carl Nichols' ruling made no sense. If you look at the statute, 18 U.S.C. 1512c says the following, whoever corruptly alters, sub 1, alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or sub 2, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. And the Trump appointee in the federal courts in D.C., Judge Carl Nichols, unlike all of the other judges there, basically ruled that um, C sub 1 is the only thing that controls here, and you just ignore subsection 2, which talks about otherwise obstructing influence or impeding any official proceeding or attempting to do so, which is what the insurrectionists were engaged in, and the court said, really, no, what really controls is just subsection C1, which is the altering, destroying, mutilating, or concealing a record or document. And the Court of Appeals ultimately reversed that ruling. And it was a very close call, though. It wasn't a per curiam or uh, unanimous decision by the Court of Appeals. It was a two-to-one decision, and there were actually two Trump-appointed judges on that panel. And so I was frankly a little bit nervous what that D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals was going to do, um, but ultimately you had a Democratic-appointed judge, Judge Florence Pan, who convinced one of the Trump-appointed judges on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Justin Walker, Judge Justin Walker, very, very young. He was born in 1982. He's already on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He was one of these you know, and I think he'd admit it, less experienced uh, lawyers who Donald Trump put on the bench uh, because they were very young. I don't think he had any trial experience. Um, but uh, the other judge, the third judge, uh, Judge Gregory Katzis, basically ruled the same way Judge Carl Nichols did, that you couldn't bring an obstruction of official proceedings. So it ultimately was a split decision, but a split with the majority in favor of the fact that you can bring this obstruction of official proceeding. And if you read between the lines in this order, Judge Florence Pan, the Democratic-appointed judge, ultimately convinced Judge Justin Walker that, hey, you're just going to look ridiculous, um, and you're a young judge, and your entire judicial career is bigger and broader than Donald Trump, so you should make the right ruling here. And obviously it doesn't say that in the ruling itself, but if you read between the lines, that's likely what took place behind uh, the scenes here. Now, ultimately, you know, the insurrectionists can try to appeal this to the United States Supreme Court, but it's hard for anybody 
to rule differently than just literally what the statute here says that I just um, read for you. So this is a very bad decision, though, um, for Donald Trump and a very good decision for special counsel Jack Smith. Why? Because the obstruction of official proceeding charge carries with it a 20-year prison sentence, and undoubtedly it is likely going to be one of the charges that ultimately Jack Smith charges Donald Trump with. It is clearly one of the crimes that uh, is being investigated, and Donald Trump attempted to obstruct an official proceeding through multiple methods, whether it was through fake electors, whether it was through inciting the insurrection, whether it was by calling and threatening state and local election officials, whether it was by improper and unlawful conduct that he was engaging in through his various political action committees and arms. His whole goal, his whole design was to do just that was to obstruct an official proceeding. So you go back to Judge Carl Nichols, and you go, what a weird ruling for Judge Carl Nichols to make. Like, what a tortured analysis. Why would Judge Carl Nichols, a Trump appointee, make that ruling? Well, Judge Carl Nichols was trying to, I think, remove one of the main charges for the person who appointed him. He was trying to remove one of the key charges that Donald Trump could ultimately be charged with. I don't think uh, Carl Nichols had a great deal of love for these insurrectionists, although you never know with all of these MAGA Republicans who are um, now singing in the January 6th choir with the terrorists. They're uh, putting out songs and, and CDs with the January 6th terrorists. But just so you know, like, I'll give you an example of one of these insurrectionists. Um, this individual, Joseph Fisher, belonged to the mob that forced Congress to stop its certification process. On January 6, 2021, he encouraged rioters to, quote, charge and hold the line, had a physical encounter with at least one law enforcement officer, and participated in pushing police. Before January 6th, he allegedly sent text messages to acquaintances stating, if Trump don't get in, we better get to war, take Democratic Congress to the gallows, can't vote if they can't breathe, LOL. I might need you to post my bail. It might get violent. They should storm the Capitol and drag all the Democrats, they spelled it D-E-M-O-C-R-A-T-E-S, into the street and have a mob trial. Um, and so that was one of the individuals who Judge Carl Nichols threw out the most powerful of the charges against him. The other charges uh, still uh, remained, but the obstruction of official proceeding charge was thrown out, and then the Department of Justice ultimately appealed that. So you see what was really kind of taking place, and this is why I want you to think about the broader context of these cases and the various kind of machinations behind the scenes, because in many ways, this appeal 
um, was one vital to making sure the Department of Justice could continue to bring obstruction of official proceeding charges and that all the other obstruction of official proceeding charges would not be reversed. What a disaster that would be if all of the insurrectionists who are convicted and pled guilty already would have those charges reversed because a Trump-appointed judge ruled that you can't bring those claims. So the good news is, is that those claims and those charges uh, from those indictments are not reversed. But kind of the proxy fight, if you will, here was the bigger battle. Donald Trump, that special counsel Jack Smith is criminally investigating Donald Trump's obstruction of an official proceeding. And here the Trump judge was trying to knock out the ability of Jack Smith to do that. And Jack Smith and the Department of Justice were fighting for their ability to continue to bring that charge through all the insurrectionists, including all the way up to the top. And, you know, look, this is why I say, while I agree with everybody who wants this process to move along quicker, it takes time because you have all of these um, impediments and roadblocks not self-imposed by special counsel Jack Smith, but are being put up by the forces of authoritarianism, <laughs> by the, you know, Trump supporters, by people who would look at a statute that you saw, right, 1512C2, I mean, you've seen what it literally says, and basically come to a conclusion that that's a charge that the Department of Justice can bring. It's also why elections are so important, because remember, the appointment power of judges is with the president, and the Senate confirms. And so Donald Trump, he was able to put in power people like Judge Carl Nichols, people like, for example, uh, the three of the right-wing Supreme Court justices, which is the reason why Roe v. Wade was overturned, not because of Democrats, okay, it was because three right-wing justices Trump appointed to the Supreme Court, um, uh, because that's the president has the ability to appoint. You want to talk about Judge Kaczmarek, the judge from the Northern District of Texas, a Trump appointee who just uh, ruled that the abortion pill uh, is unlawful and issued a nationwide injunction. Fortunately, an Obama-appointed judge from uh, the state of Washington, Eastern District, said, what are you talking about? No, I'm ordering the FDA to keep the abortion pill legal because it's been proven to be safe and efficient since the year 2000. What in the world are you doing, judge, in the Northern District of Texas? But it's why elections are important. But it's also important why we here on the Midas Touch Network talk about these different maneuvers going on behind the scenes so that you fully understand the process. And that's just you, because you, by watching Midas Touch Network and Legal AF and all our shows, probably get it now. But so you can explain to friends and family members and coworkers and colleagues and neighbors what goes on. So because it's not a both sides issue anyway. Thank you so much for watching this. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers thanks to your incredible support. So please hit subscribe right now. Also, check us out at uh, patreon.com slash Midas Touch. We have lots of great exclusive memberships there with exclusive content. We're not funded by outside investors at all. 
So our whole funding for this whole operation is through Patreon mostly. Um, that's how that's like one of our main sources. Also, the merch at store.midastouch.com is an example. Um, but it's free to subscribe here. It's free to subscribe to our audio podcast when you search the Midas Touch podcast. So check us out. Until next time, I'm Ben Mycellus. Thank you so much for watching. Lock him up. Indictment season is upon us. Celebrate with the new indictment season t-shirt and v-neck exclusively at store.midastouch.com. I'm Anthony Davis. Welcome to The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can subscribe to my work and get exclusive access to bonus content, live Q&As, and more at patreon.com slash five-minute news. Joining us today is Shannon Watts, the founder of Mums Demand Action and author of Fight Like a Mother, how a grassroots movement took on the gun lobby and why women will change the world. Shannon, welcome to The Weekend Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. On March 28th, we saw the murder of three children and three adults at the Covenant School in Tennessee by a former student. Police named the young victims as Evelyn Deakhouse, Hallie Scruggs and William Kinney, all aged nine. Uh, this is just the latest school shooting here in the U.S., which has caused a drama now with two state lawmakers being expelled over their gun safety protests. Let's go back to 2012, if we can, uh, and remember the 14th of December, when a gunman opened fire in Sandy Hook School in Newton, Connecticut, killing 26 children and educators. Well, the next day, you started a Facebook group to unite women against the gun lobby. Just um, tell us about that moment, please. I was a stay-at-home mom of five kids, uh, ranging in age from elementary school all the way to college, and I had taken a five-year break from my career in corporate communications to blend my, my family with my husband's, um, our second marriages, and I was just getting ready to go back to work for a job when uh, on December 12, or December 14th of 2012, I was folding laundry in my bedroom of my home uh, in Indiana. And I saw breaking news that there was a gunman in a school, as you said, in Newtown, Connecticut. I just sort of sat on the side of my bed and watched this tragedy unfold for hours. Um, and it was just you know, unfathomable at the time that 20 children and six educators would be slaughtered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. And like most Americans, I went to bed in tears and just absolutely devastated. And then I woke up the next day and I was so angry. And I was just to the point of being agitated. I didn't know what to do with all this rage. And I thought, you know, when I was a teen growing up in the 80s, Mothers Against Drunk Driving was such an influential organization to me. And really, you know, women are who have been at the forefront of any kind of major change in this country, right? All the way from prohibition up to the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. And so I thought, okay, there has to be an organization that already exists, like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but for gun safety. And when I went online, what I found were mostly tanks run by men 
some one-off city and state organizations, again, mostly run by men. And I knew I wanted to be part of a badass army of women. So I started a Facebook page. I had uh, 75 Facebook friends at the time. <laughs> um, I was not on Twitter. And I just thought I was starting a conversation about the need for women to rise up against the gun lobby. And uh, of course, women, being the forces of nature they are, turned it into the largest grassroots movement in the country. It's, it's so interesting, isn't it? For those of us who are parents, and I, I have two kids in elementary school, uh, and I moved from a country that had no guns, um, one school shooting years ago, they banned guns the next day, practically. That was Dunblane, and then there was never another event like it in, in the UK. And I moved and brought up my children in a, in a country where school shootings are a regular occurrence and mass shootings are uh, a weekly or daily event, effectively. And the statistic that bothered me the most recently, which is I know one that you have mentioned many, many times in your campaign, is that statistically now guns are the number one killer of children and teens in America. Yes, that's right. So, you know, this it, crisis in this country, and it's pretty intuitive, right? The fact that if you uh, have 400 million guns and in, in the hands of civilians and you have very weak gun laws, that this will become an increasing crisis. Now, what the other side wants us to believe is that somehow more guns make us more safe. If 400 million guns and weak gun laws made us safer, we would be the safest nation in the world. And instead, we have a 26 times higher gun homicide rate than any peer nation. And, and so it isn't surprising that we are seeing um, gun violence and gun death increase, particularly in those states, red states, that have weakened their gun laws. And as you said, guns are now the leading cause of death among children and teens in America, everything from suicide to homicide to unintentional shootings. Um, this is all preventable. This is all absolutely senseless. But something we also have that no other peer nation has is a gun lobby and gun makers who have essentially been given a, t a seat at the table to help write our gun laws. And of course, they are not going to write those laws to protect public safety. They're going to write them to protect their profits. When you talk about the, the politics of this, you talk about, you know, school shootings, it can be solved with gun safety or, you know, reduction of certain types of firearms where we, we know that the, the studies have been done. But when we talk about who is preventing this, you refer to the other side. Is it really as simple as the fact that Republicans are all about school shootings and don't seem to have an emotional connection to the death of children in the same way that Democrats do? I mean, is it as cut and dry as that? Because, you know, as a European looking at this, from my perspective, I just cannot understand how an entire political movement in terms of the Republicans can overlook this fact that the lives of children are lost in the process of, you know, for them keeping something that is, is, is dear to them, but only in, in kind of name only. It is incredibly complicated and it is an issue with a very long history. 
If you go back to the early 70s, the NRA was essentially a a sports organization, right? So they were about hunting and fishing and even gun safety. That is not who they are anymore. They became radicalized in the late 70s. They became an organization that was focused actually on lobbying. And they've gone more and more to the right. And that's because they've been pulled to the right um, by other gun groups, national and state-based. So pretty much any state you live in in this country has a gun lobbying organization that is to the right of the NRA. It's kind of how the Tea Party pulled the Congress to the right um, in the 90s. And so if you go back to, for example, 1999, the NRA and gun makers actually supported a background check on every gun sale. They opposed guns in schools. Um, that's all for the, for the watching on YouTube. But as they got pulled more and more to the right, and as they realized the demographic that they were selling guns to, mostly white men over the age of 50 or 60 in this country, as they realized that demographic was dying out, <laughs> that doesn't sound very gentle, but, but that's the truth of it, that they would need to sell more guns to more people. And the only way to do that was to become more extreme and to oppose any gun laws whatsoever. And that's where we've gotten to this place where so many Republicans feel beholden to the gun lobby because they used their power and their wealth to essentially make Republicans feel afraid that they would be primaried in any election they ran in, right, by someone who's to the right of them on this issue. If you go back to 2013, just a few months after the Sandy Hook school shooting, there was a bill put forward, it was a bipartisan piece of legislation that would have closed the background check loophole in this country, right? You have to have a background check on licensed sales, but you do not have to have them uh, if you, you don't have to perform them if you are an unlicensed seller. And that's how millions and millions of guns are sold every year in this country. So this legislation failed. And the reason it failed by just a handful of votes in the Senate was even some Democrats voted against it because they were so afraid of the NRA. And Republicans were yeah. so afraid of the NRA. It, huh? And what did the NRA the, do uh, after that bill yeah, changed? Yeah, they didn't go back in and support yeah, the Democrats who were with yeah. them. Outside. They actually oh, they're already outside. them yeah. and poured millions uh, of dollars into the puppies must be roaming around. I don't even see them down there. Campaigns. They gotta be roaming around with them. Sophia. Because the Democrats right now. realized they're moving. friends they're like starting to move everywhere. the NRA who needs enemies. She's not right on. And it even Fuck no. made Republicans They're bad because they're gonna, they went out and ate his cord. Now, they a decade just, later, they're going to eat shit. You know what? They're puppies. And what I'm trying to do is trying to give them as much food as possible. And I'm going to give them some toys. In 2012. I'm going to get some toys and give them toys and let them play with the toys because they're teething. And, just, and I, I took lemon. you got to take lemon, put it in a bottle with water, and spray it on shit. To keep them from eating shit. They're gonna come up here. They've been up here at nighttime. They've been coming. They come. They can get anywhere. They're this big. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to keep them out of here. I've caught them in here twice now. And they're coming in. They're coming in here. They're walking all the way to the back and shit. They're nosy as fuck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I would put something there to scare them and scare the fuck out of the birds. You know, some some woo 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 shit. Are you getting M and M's? Oh, go. Huh? You got some? I'm gonna get out of here. All right, go back to sleep. You going to sleep? Nap time? Oh, nap. Nap time, see you. <clears throat> Have a good one, dude. Seismic shift in American politics.
And we're even starting to see more and more Republicans peel away from the gun lobby. But this is this is a many year process to really release uh, finger by finger the stranglehold that the gun lobby has on our lawmakers. The, the NRA and their kind of evil leader, Wayne LaPierre, who I mean, really fits the description of somebody who has no emotional connection with with, you know, love and life and loss and all of the kind of human feelings that we would have as, as parents and as family members of, of, of children who even just go to school with that risk, knowing that something might happen. I just, you know, I, I cannot get into the mind of that guy. I, I, I listen to him speak and I'm just like, there is a total... I mean, it's, it's not that he <laughs> denies that it's happening, but he has an answer and an excuse for everything, doesn't he? Kind of uses a certain type of language where he gives the impression that, oh, yes, no, I'm listening and we are making changes. But of course he's not. And, you know, he has benefited personally, become very wealthy. There's been controversy about his use of, of NRA funds. And of course there was the, you know, that, that kind of bankruptcy period as well. And despite all of this there doesn't seem to be really a dent in, in the NRA's hold over Republicans, some of whom are people that you would have thought would be quite open to this type of, um, you know, understanding the emotional cost here. People like Mitt Romney, for example. Hi, everyone. Mark Barden here at Sandy Hook Promise. On December 14, 2012, my seven-year-old son, Daniel, was shot to death. Yeah, I will never understand how anyone who sides with the NRA or takes money from the NRA sleeps at night, personally, um, because these policies have a clear through line. And data proves that weak gun laws lead to more gun violence and more gun death. So personally, I don't understand it except to look at the corruption. You know, the NRA does not and has really never operated like the nonprofit they claim to be. As you mentioned, Wayne LaPierre uh, has received millions and millions of dollars in his role as the CEO of that organization. Um, he has uh, been investigated for using nonprofit funding to uh, supplement his wardrobe, to pay for personal travel and vacations. Um, he once tried to buy a home after the Parkland shooting tragedy to protect him, <laughs> ironically. And so if you look at the NRA, it's very clear that the way they operate is you know, there's a, a corrupt special interest that is profiting um, from these gun laws that are killing Americans. I would push back a little bit on this idea that Republicans aren't beginning to evolve on this issue. Certainly, there are gun extremists that have been elected to state legislatures. There are gun extremists in the U.S. Senate. Um, there are some that are simply cowardly, you know, people like Lindsey Graham and, as you mentioned, Mitt Romney, people who know exactly what they're doing and they know it's wrong, and yet they can't risk, you know, losing their jobs or losing the money or the power or the support that they've had from gun makers for the last several decades. Um, that is beginning to change. You know, I, I think people get so frustrated by incremental change, and I understand that. Um, but those, the way the system is set up, the way democracy works, is that it is not an overnight process. I wish that it were. I would not have been a full-time volunteer for the last decade. <laughs> I would have been doing other things with my life. 
Um, but you know, it became very clear to us when that bill I mentioned earlier, the Manchin-Toomey bill failed, that Congress is not where this work begins, it's where it ends. And that we would need to go into school boards and city councils and state houses. And we would need to work on this issue culturally, legislatively, electorally, and that that was how change was made. And that incrementalism does actually lead to revolutions. And once you have that kind of momentum, you will see people like Mitt Romney finally do the right thing. I personally don't care if Republicans do the right thing because they've had a change of heart or mind or because it's politically expedient. We just need them to do it. Mum's demand action has a kind of slightly different tactic for kind of getting through to these people, right? Just tell us a little bit about your, your process. And, and because I do, you know, and I apologize if I gave the impression that there wasn't change, because I know that there are so many people campaigning, and of course there is. But, you know, ultimately, you know, banning these semi-automatic rifles would be the first and most obvious way of, of reducing the numbers of, of, of children who, who die in these shootings, because these weapons are used the most. But just explain about what it is that the organization is doing and how it goes about that. Sure. You know, we actually prioritize background checks because when you look at the data, it is the foundation of any gun safety system. And it is what keeps guns out of the hands of, of dangerous people or people who are a risk to themselves or others, like minors. Um, and, and so background checks is first and foremost our priority. Um, we need that at a federal level. We are all only as safe as the closest state with the weakest gun laws. However, we have done that work state by state. We've now passed background check laws in 20 states. Unfortunately, what the NRA is working to pass is something called permitless carry. That is a law that allows people to carry hidden loaded handguns in public with no background check, and no safety training. They have now passed those laws in 21 states, and they're currently working to pass that in Florida. So you, you really have this interesting dichotomy of blue states with strong laws, including background checks, and very many red states with incredibly weak laws and absolutely no background check required whatsoever. And, and the data is very clear, right? These red states have more gun violence and more gun death. Blue states have less gun violence and less gun death. Um, so background checks are a priority for us. Disarming domestic abusers, we now pass laws in 29 states um, that go further than federal law and prevent anyone who has been convicted of domestic abuse, including misdemeanors, of having access to guns. Um, we pass secure storage laws in states, uh, which essentially requires adults to keep their guns locked, unloaded, separate from ammunition. Um, and then, yes, we have also passed assault weapon bans and magazine limits. Um, I, I want to make sure people understand that mass shootings and school shootings are about 1% of the gun violence in this country. The daily gun violence that kills 110 people, wounds hundreds more, is mostly carried out with handguns. Uh, it's mostly in our communities. It's gun homicide, which disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. It's also gun suicide, uh, which is typically in, in, in rural areas, but now more and more common among children and teens all over the country. Um, this is a complex issue, gun violence. It requires holistic solutions and not just laws, right? We are also unlocking hundreds of millions of dollars for community violence intervention programs. Um, those are programs where people are trained to stop retaliatory gun violence before it can happen. 
Um, and then we also work on this issue, as I mentioned, electorally. So we get involved in every single election cycle to vote for or support what we call gun sense candidates. Our own volunteers are running for office. 140 ran in November and won um, at all levels of government. And then culturally, we talk a lot about secure storage, teaching people how to ask about how guns are stored when they send their kids to families and friends' homes. Um, and getting celebrities and influencers and athletes and others to speak out on this issue. Uh, it, it is going to require addressing it on all fronts, and, and I think we've done a pretty good job of that for the last decade. Hey guys, look, I just hit the gym and I wanted to jump on here real quick and share a piece of advice, okay? If anyone tells you that's just the way it is, you do not have to accept that. A few years ago, I wasn't doing so hot. I was overweight, I was tired all the time, I had the brain fog thing going on, and everybody told me, well, champ, you're just getting old. But I'm here to tell you, they were wrong. I discovered that it doesn't have anything to do with age at all. I turned things around my way. And at 60 plus, I feel better than I ever have. Trust me, you just need a little knowledge. So I made this little video for you. I hope you check it out. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm the busiest man on TV. I don't know if you've heard, but at 65, uh, I have now become a fashion style icon. That was an accident. Uh, you know, look, I've always been into fashion ever since I was a little boy. Uh, my mom raised us in church, and we had to dress up to go to church. So I always thought that a suit was necessary, you know. I've always been into it, and now, because of uh, a couple of pictures that went viral, I'm now the king of fashion. That's alarming, and that's come a long way, because really all I wanted to be was a king of comedy, man. That was really it, you know. Uh, I've kind of been popping up all over the place lately, trying to uh, keep up with the queen herself. The one and only Miss Marjorie Harvey. Uh, she's a bad girl. I'm married to a bad girl. So really I had to start dressing up just so I could keep up. That's what it was really about. I didn't want to look like the fat old man standing next to her. So I had to do it. So I always say, look, you know, if you look good, you feel good, you do good. That's always been a philosophy of mine. But feeling good and this transformation you see on the outside wouldn't have happened if I didn't start with the transformation on the inside. You know, I've been struggling with it for a long enough. I've been keeping it quiet long enough. You know, I've been living in the body of an old man long enough. It really hurt me to say that, but I was starting to feel old, you know. But I found a solution, and I found more than a solution, everybody. I found out what was actually causing it, and I noticed that it was happening to a lot of my friends, you know, because I got a group of guys that I hang out with, and we gather a couple of times a year, and I started noticing some things in them, and many of them had the same condition, you know, and this is something that's not talked about anymore. And it's a target spot on your body where aging takes place. And we're gonna talk about it today. It might be a little uncomfortable for some of you. It was for me, but we gotta get into it. And we're gonna talk about it because it's revolutionary. I had faith that I would find a fix for it because I did. Once I started doing something, I never give up. I learned that all my problems started in a part of the body that nobody ever talks about or even remembers from their sixth grade science class, and you are not going to believe it. I feel like I have the sales of a person in their 40s, 
And I actually do because my blood work says that now, my doctors tell me. Mr. Harvey, you have the blood of a 38-year-old man. And that's like really good for me, you know. So I found something that turns back the clock on a micro level. Now, it wasn't long ago that this is how I looked. See that? That's that view. You don't really see yourself from the side. Have you ever got out the bathtub or the shower and you walk towards the mirror? When you're walking towards the mirror, you look absolutely fantastic. But if you turn to the side, 